Church, if you would, would you stand with me as we read um, the word of the Lord this morning? I'm going to be uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, um, reading from the NIV, um, and as you're going to notice that there's going to be three slides of scripture reading that's going to, that's going to come up on the screen um, this morning, because we're going to read uh, not only the end of chapter 2, um, but the first half, maybe the first three quarters of uh, chapter 3. Um, so a big, big portion of scripture this morning. It says this. It says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body uh, by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you, want, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those of you who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with, with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. For this reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has been now revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings, which is for your glory. I think I accidentally pasted twice, but Lord Jesus, would, would we 
would we know this gospel? Would we, would we be reminded that it is, it is to the church that the gospel is regularly preached to as well? And, and so as followers of Christ, would we sit in this place where we recognize again that the gospel is for our ears, for our ears to listen to right now? It's for us to, to better learn and understand and embrace. May we know the good news of all things being reconciled under the name of Jesus. So Lord, where right now there's turmoil, where right now there might be hostility, where right now there might be anxiousness, stress, death at work, not only in our bodies individually, but in maybe even in ways that we relate with other people. Lord, would we see peace happen? And so we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please feel free to have a seat. I want to talk to you this morning uh, to start off by talking about aha moments. Aha moments. Um, you'll see a, a logo up on, on the screen right now. If anyone remembers this old uh, surf brand called Roxy, does anyone remember uh, this surf brand? If you don't, it's, it's fine. Um, but I bring this up because I used to work um, at, a, at a retail store called Miller's Outpost. Does anyone remember Miller's Outpost? Okay, I used to work in Miller's Outpost, uh, got eventually name changed to Anchor Blue, and uh, my job for, for a, large, a long uh, portion of the time there working at um, Anchor Blue was in the stock room. And I was responsible for folding all of the clothes before they got brought out to the floor or hanging them. Um, and so for months, months in the stock room, um, a lot of the shirts that I was folding and hanging were uh, Roxy brand. And uh, it was one day while I'm sitting there and I'm folding all this, this pile of Roxy brand shirts that I looked down and just a light bulb went off. And I just went, like speaking to myself, no way. I've never seen that before. And I realized there in that moment that Roxy and Quicksilver were the same company. And the Roxy logo, if you go to the next slide, is the Quicksilver logo <laughs> twice. Formed in the way of the heart. And I don't know why that entertained me so much. I don't know what, like, what it was about it, but there was this aha moment. I was like, oh my goodness. The Roxy logo is the Quicksilver logo. Just, it was just this awe. And, and so from this day forward, I can't look at the Roxy logo without seeing now with fresh eyes that it's, it's the same uh, logo there. Just this past um, Friday, on, um, while the boys are in school together, Larissa and I get the opportunity to have uh, Fridays. Um, it's, our, it's our day off, so we get to go out with one another, and we went to go watch a movie at um, Fashion Valley AMC, and as we were watching the movie, um, or the previews for the movie, there was this group, I don't know, a company called Nuvi, um, and it was spelled N-O-O-V-I-E, and I turned to Larissa and I said, that's, why? Yeah, that makes sense that we, it would be spelled Nuvi with two O's. And I said, 
but why wouldn't we spell movie with two O's? Because wouldn't you pronounce it movie? Like if you just saw that without any context. And she looked at me like I was like being dumb. Like you're playing right now. And I'm like, no, why, why do we spell movie the way that we spell movie? And she said, because it moves. Like it's from the root word move. It's a movie and not, not a still E. I was like, I never knew that. <laughs> I never knew that. We have these aha kind of moments, or maybe one of the things that trends on the internet nowadays is, I was today years old when I realized this. But there are also these aha moments that happen in life where we will never see the world the same way again. I, I remember Tim Mackey on the Bible Project podcast, he was reflecting upon how the global pandemic was this big aha kind of moment for so many people around the globe where they realized, oh man, the value on the local grocery store worker. You remember us standing in line with masks and just all of us thanking uh, people that were working in Costco and Bonds and Ralph's and Trader Joe's, like, my goodness, like, society would crumble were it not to be for the work that you do for our farmers and our, and if you remember scenes of New York and people standing outside of their, their balconies and just applauding medical care workers for the work that they do, that it, it, it was, for so many, it was like this aha kind of moment. We will never see the world the same way again. So many things are changed because of that space. When, when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, what you'll notice that he often does is he uses these words um, that we don't translate it like this in, in, in the English translations. We'll translate it like he's made known to us or we've been given the revelation of the word that he will often use in his writings are, is the word apocalypto. And what he's saying is that we would be apocalypse, that there would be this revelation, there would be this aha kind of moment that would happen for the body of believers so that we might not ever see the world the same way again. So Paul's hoping for us to have an aha moment. I want to, if we can, can we, can we nerd out on paragraph structure together uh, for a little bit? This is Ephesians chapter 2, and in Ephesians chapter 2, the first part in which we covered last week is on the left-hand side, and Ephesians, the second part, which we read this morning, is on the right-hand side. And Paul, you'll notice, is purposely designing the, the movement of Ephesians chapter 2 to be two parallel kind of movements. And what he's doing is that in the first part, in, in verse 1, he's letting us know, listen, y'all were once dead in your sins. And in verse 11, he's telling us, listen, y'all at one point were estranged from God and his people. And then the next movement that he does is he's letting us know the, the reason that we were dead is because there were these agents of power that were moving amongst us in this world. Uh, the, the ruler of, of the air, the, the devil, uh, the, the culture, the ways of the world, and our own 
desires, our own definition of what is good and bad, that was ruling, and that's where, that's where we were dead. And he also lets us know, hey, y'all were once estranged from God and his people, and the agents that were keeping us in that, that place were this dividing wall, this hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. But God, while we were dead, but God, rich in mercy, made us alive. But now, in Messiah Jesus, we've been brought near by the blood of, by the, blood of the Messiah. God intervened in, this, in that state that we found ourselves. And so now, this is who we are. We, are a, we were once dead. We we're a resurrected people. We are alive together in the Messiah. And now, where there used to be hostility, now we live in peace. And what Paul is communicating here as he structures these two movements together is he wants an apocalypse for the church. This is the mystery. This is the aha moment that I want you to have. If you go forward two slides, what's the aha moment? And, and, and Paul builds it together here in, in the second half of the Ephesians chapter 2 and through Ephesians chapter 3. This is what he's communicating to us. This is the mystery of the cosmos. If you've ever wondered what life is all about, Paul is saying, listen, generations before, they didn't know. But you know. And here's, here's the aha moment that I want you to have that will forever redefine living for you. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. We cannot understate how big of a deal this is. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body. And then in, in verses 9 through 10, I want to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent, God's intent, was that now that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Paul wants the church to have this aha moment. This is how I want you to view life. This is what I want your worldview to be. This is the perspective that I want you to have that will forever redefine how you live, church. This was God's purpose. This was God's intent. This is what he's up to on the cross in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Not only is he raising you to life individually, no, it's, it's much bigger than that. It's not less than that. But he's raising y'all to new life. And you're heirs together. You're a new humanity together. And you, you who were once far away, you're now brought near. And you're a people. You're a people. I want to talk a little bit about attachment. I want to talk about attachment. Um, I've been reading this book, uh, The Other Half of Church, for, for a while now. I think we've read it 
about a year and a half ago, and um, in this book, The Other Half of Church, it's called Christian Community, Brain Science, and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation, um, but one of the things that it explores is what does it look like um, to, to, to love, to have attachment together, and um, one of the definitions to help us understand attachment is um, gives the picture of, of a mom holding their newborn child, and the way that they just immediately look into each other's eyes. And, and there is forming attachment. Healthy, joyful, secured attachment. Where that baby knows that they are loved, that they are safe, and that they are delighted in. This is attachment. We didn't, you don't have to teach people this. But from the very moment that my son Justice saw his younger brother Tiago, attachment was taking place. Attachment happened. And my phone is filled with pictures of them looking at each other. Their eyes are locked together with one another. And one of, one of the pictures that I don't have up there is I have this picture, and the way that the picture is, is I'm looking at Justice, Justice is looking at Tiago, and Tiago's looking at me. And in that picture, for me, is what the picture of being the church together is is that we see each other, I see you, you see God, God sees me. And it's this just beautiful dance of how we are all in this place of which we find this bond together, life together, that, 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 that attachment is what we're made for. Why is this so important? Because when we, when we talk about this word discipleship, a lot of times the way that we view discipleship is kind of in this algorithm. That discipleship equals right, inform right information and right choices. And that that's a lot of times how we want to see transformation happen in people's lives. That if I just give people the right information and I teach them to make right choices, then transformation, then discipleship is going to happen. And, 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 and as the church in general, we've, we've, kind of, we've taught each other this algorithm. Let me give you truth. Let me teach you to make right choices. And as you do that, you will grow in Jesus. But there's this vital component that we're missing. And the missing ingredient is attachment. That if you want to see transformation happen in your life, if you want to see growth happen in your life, if you want to see formation take place in your life, then healthy attachment has to be in the mixture. It has to be in the mixture. Listen to these quotes from, from the other half of church. It says this, 
Attachment is an essential soil nutrient for forming our character, the way my first community molded me. Our brains draw life from our strongest relational attachments. To grow our character and to develop our identity, we, who we love shapes who we are. Our brains are designed to use our attachments to form our character. And developments in, in modern brain science have made it clear that any model of transformation and character change must be anchored in the development of a love bond with God and with his people. And when you read through the gospel accounts, see it through the language of attachment. What Jesus is teaching the church is, I am now your primary attachment. Follow me. Love me. And what he's calling us out, uh, out from is this place of understanding. You, you have had attachments. I'm not, I'm not, in a lot of ways, he's not calling us to get rid of these familial attachments that exist in our life, but it's this understanding that now he becomes our primary attachment. That it would be in him that we find our security and our love and know that we're delighted in. That now what ends up happening is that he becomes our source of life. He's our attachment. Jesus is calling us to love him, to find security and joy in him. And what's, what's intriguing, what's intriguing to me is that when Jesus comes and he, and, he, and he speaks to his people, what he teaches them is, listen, is that those that follow me, those that worship me must do so in spirit and in truth. What's he teaching the church there? Right information isn't enough. But you need relational presence. Another quote from, from the book Live No Lies, John Mark Comer um, quotes uh, Pentecostal scholar Gordon Fee. What is spirit? Gordon Fee defined spirit as God's empowering presence. So we need both spirit and truth, both the relational presence of Jesus and his community and the meaning-giving truth of our rabbi's mental maps. What God is calling us to is attachment. And for, for what Paul gives, what Paul wants for the church to know, this aha moment for the church to be able to grasp and understand and embrace is this, is that you are a people that are now united together, a diverse people that are united together. What he's doing is saying, listen, this is, this is, what, I'm do this is what I'm up to in the world is I'm calling a people who used to be in hostility with one another, Jews and Gentiles. And the work that I'm up to, the thing that I want to accomplish in the world, is bring those two groups together. And for them together to be a new people. 
And it's, and it's when that takes place, there's going to be depths and dimensions to an experience of my love that you would not be able to experience if that, that merging together did not take place. Uh, quoting Tim Mackey, he just basically says it this way, the, uh, just basically already quoted him. He said, there are depths and dimensions of the love of God that are impossible for me to experience if I am not regularly around other followers of Jesus who are not like me. The, the mystery of God is that he's calling people together who are not like with one another to learn joyful relationship with each other. To, to, learn, to learn joyful, life-giving attachment together. There's a, another author, Esau, Esau McCauley, and he, he writes a great book. It's called Reading While Black. And he writes this, this book to... to, to just the body of believers, and he says, this is, I'm, and he essentially, he writes this book because he wants people to know, you know, growing up uh, as a follower of Jesus, but also in a, in a black family, there's, there's different ways that I've experienced the world, there's different ways that I've experienced our society, there's different ways that, that I have learned from my elders, my mothers, my fathers, in my community, and I, I, he wrote a book so that we might just know the world from his perspective. He was being interviewed by uh, Tim Mackey, and he had this great line within the interview. He said, my experiences shape the way that I see the world and influences the way that I read the Bible. In some ways, it helps me, and in some ways, it hinders me which is the reason why I need other people with differing experiences to help me read the Bible better. What Jesus is up to in the world is he's showing us his multifaceted nature. He's revealing to us the depths of his love He's letting us know that the way that you will experience this is by being a once divided people who are now being brought together and learn what it is to have life together, to learn what it is to love one another. This is going to get deep and theological and kind of wild for, for a little bit, but I think that it's worth it. I want to take you through... Um, what Paul is up through in a kind of synopsis way in Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. When, when Paul writes to us through, through these opening chapters of the book of Ephesians, he's reflecting on um, these powers that are at work in the world. And we could spend hours reflecting on what is Paul meaning when he talks about powers at work in the world, um, but to try to summarize it, to give a synopsis in a way that hopefully makes sense, is that Paul is saying that there are these influences that are at work in the world around us. These influences that exist are seen and unseen, that there are powers 
in the world, seen powers in the world. There's, there's people that are in authority. There are, there are cultural powers at work in the world around us. There's our own intuitions and desires that are at work in the world around us. There are these seen powers at work in the world, but there's also these unseen powers at work in the world. And so when Paul uses this phrase, the heavenly realms, it actually becomes really dynamic and also complex in what he's communicating to us. Because when he uses this heavenly realms, he's talking about the fact that there are all of these different powers that exist around us. I'm going somewhere with this. But when you read, so when you read through Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, you'll see that power, he's talking about his power, the power of the Holy Spirit is the same mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So God's power is greater than all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. God placed all things under his, Jesus's feet, and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church. So God's power is greater than all of these other powers that are at work, seen and unseen. Ephesians chapter 2, then, he continues to reflect on this. You used to live when you followed the ways of the world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, right? You used to be dead because you used to be influenced by all these other powers that are at work in the world. Well, in chapter 3, he then says, God's intent in bringing diverse people together to be a new people. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Again, it gets wild, it gets complex, it's super theological, but I believe what Paul is communicating here to us is this. Listen, there are powers that are at work in this world, and what those powers are up to are disunity and destruction. There are powers that are at work in this world, seen and unseen. You're going to get a glimpse of this at play in our world over the next calendar year, and it's called the election cycle. There are powers that are at work in this world, and those powers are sowing discord. There are powers that are at work in the church, even, that are seeking to influence the church towards death, disunity, and destruction. God's purpose is to say, amongst this environment of hostility, is to say, but watch what I can do. Here's the church. The world around us may be a hostile environment marked by greed and violence and hostility and disunity. And what God does is to, to say, listen, but look at the church because that's what I can do. And what God works in is unity and life. And, and, and his purpose is, 
is to confound all of the other powers that are at work in this world. We become a counter story to what's happening in the world. We, we become a testimony to the world of the character and nature of our God. He brings life. He brings unity. This is what he's up to. There's this quote from, from uh, Timothy Gombus. I'm going to read the longer portion of the quote. He says, in the face of the powers and authorities whose rule over this present evil age is characterized by destruction, division, and leading humanity astray into idolatry. God's power is demonstrated by his ability to create the new humanity and to set it in the midst of enemy territory, thus confounding the evil powers. Paul is not here charging the church with the task of preaching to the powers, Rather, he is claiming that God has made known his multifaceted plan. The powers have ordered the present evil age in such a way as to exacerbate the divisions within humanity created by the law. God confounds the powers, however, by creating in Christ one unified multiracial body consisting formally consisting of formerly divided groups of people. The mere existence of the church as such a body set within the hostile environment of the present evil age proclaims the wisdom of God. Again, we cannot understate how important it is to be a people that know joyful attachment. We cannot understate how important it is to be a people that learn to have life together. That we would learn what it is to, to enjoy each other's presence. And so that's why in two weeks when we, when we turn the page to Ephesians chapter 4, Everything from this point forward that Paul will talk about with the church is what, it'll, what does it look like to get along together? What does it look like to live in healthy community? What does it look like to, to, to take off the, the clothes that we used to wear of greed and, and lust and disunity? And what does it look like to be clothed in Jesus? He's going to get super practical with the church because, listen, for, for, for Paul, this, this is everything. Our life together is everything. And for Paul, this is the hill that we're willing to die on. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am the le less than the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and make plain to everyone in the administration of this mystery. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. 
And so for Paul, if his suffering means the building up of the church, then it's worth it. If his imprisonment means that people find life together, then it is a place of honor. And for, for, for Paul, the aha moment for us is this. We'll give everything for the church. The local church is everything. The body of believers coming together and finding life together. That's what's worth striving towards. That's what's worth laboring for. That's, what's giving, that's what is worth giving our life for. For people. And so if my sufferings mean that you'll see the power of God, great. If my unworthiness and my being the least of all people will make it plain to everyone else that Jesus is greater, count me in. If we suffer it mean, and it means that people step into life in this new humanity, then sign us up. And if we suffer and it means that the church is strengthened, count me in. My suffering is for your glory. My imprisonment means that you find joy together. Then it is a place of prestige and honor. The local church, the body of believers, this new humanity living together under the banner of Jesus' love. And so when Jesus sits around the table, with the disciples, can we reframe this for a little bit, a little bit this morning? Because I think a lot of the times we see this table and what we hear is, and only here is this is my body which is given for you individually. And there's truth to that. Again, it's not less than that. This is Jesus' body given for you. But there's a y'all in there that we don't want to miss. Jesus breaks bread and he shares the cup. And it's done amongst a group. I'm going to the cross for y'all. For you. Together. This is my blood poured out for y'all. And when we, when we come to this table, yes, we are to be reminded, you've been brought near to God. You individually have been brought near to God. But it's also this statement is, listen, God has invited you to be a part of a people. 
you draw near and, and, and what we intentionally do is when we talk about partaking of communion, it's something that we share together. And, and, it's, and, it's, and it's together we remember Jesus given for us. There, there was a point in which we were singing this morning. And we can go back into that song after communion. That just hit home for me. And it was this expression that, it, that we'll be there with a thousand generations. It was just this realization that God has been faithful to a thousand generations. That he has consistently loved and graced and extended his goodness to a thousand generations. And there will be a day when together a thousand generations will be surrounding his throne. And just the beauty of that, that we get to, there's to be a day where we look around the throne room of God and we will see this widely diverse community of people and recognize that for all of us, it's the exact same story. That to us, in our different locations and in our different environments and in our, in our different histories, to, to us and to all of us, God has demonstrated his goodness to us.